the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. Wrestling fans, and welcome to a JJ, the, the JJ Dylan podcast. I am your co-host JP John Pod, and with me, as always, is the star of the show, the two-time Hall of Famer, the leader of the Four Horsemen, the second greatest manager of all time, and a former WWF and WCW executive. Of course, talking about James J. Dylan. JJ, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Great to talk to you. Now. JJ, tonight is going to be uh, a very specific topic, and, and we'll get into that in a second. But how did you feel after the first show? Everything going good? Because we got some great feedback as far as the show. Yes, I, I have a. I live in Delaware, which is you know a, a kind of a secluded place. Uh, it's about the size of New Jersey, but the pop the population is or about the size of California, but population is uh, less uh, the whole state's less than a million people so it's a uh, it's a great place to live uh, my I, reason i came back here was because my mother was originally from here so when uh, she, my father passed and she was getting up in years uh it, 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 my journey brought me back here so as to be by her and while i still had her and then uh, got it you know i needed uh, <laughs> because i had uh, children again late in life, and I had to provide benefits for them, so I needed to find work, and um, ended up with uh, uh, working for the Department of Correction at the prison here in Smyrna, and ended up uh, when it was all said and done that retired from there with about the, between 11 and 12 years of service. So I've had a <laughs> I've had a really a diverse background and experience in life, and uh, and, and really liked it here in Delaware and stayed here and. Uh, it's very quiet, and um, like I say, the uh, cost of living is very reasonable. And I'm I'm like 65 miles from the Philly airport, and about 80 from or 85 from BWI. So in terms of going somewhere, uh, it's accessible. And I'm about I'm not a beachgoer, but I'm like 50 miles from Rehoboth Beach if I want to go down there and look on the boardwalk and enjoy the sun a little bit. So it's uh, it's a great place. Yeah, Delaware, great place to. That is for sure. And as far as last week's show, it was definitely a blast getting to talk to you and kind of relive a lot of those memories, getting relive MSG in 1984. It's just uh, quite an honor for me to be able to get to talk to you for as long as we did last week and kind of delve into a whole lot, a lot of different topics and definitely getting into the world of the executive department of, of wrestling, the, the backstage role and behind the scenes of professional wrestling. 
Yeah, well, it, it was a uh, an eventual journey was going to have to be in that direction. And I may have pointed out last week that I started full time with uh, when Jim Crockett Sr. was still alive uh, in Charlotte, 1981, uh, something like that. And, you know, I realized at that point that, you know, I, I, in terms of being active, um, you know, going to events and, and being involved in the ring as a manager, whatever, you know, was going to was very limited because of my age. So I, I realized that way back prior to that. So the whole time since, um, I guess, even going back to the 60s, uh, it, you know, a lot of people focus on their individual career and which is understandable to uh, because it's a very competitive business and uh, a lot of uncertainty. So that that's important to stay on top of things. But at the same time, I had to look at the big picture and realize that because of my age, uh, being an, uh, an on-air personality and so forth, uh, you know, even as a manager, which gives you more longevity, still was not, uh, you know, going to give me an unlimited future. So I, I totally was involved in behind the scenes, um, uh, television production, how shows are put together, how they're structured, uh, involved in talent relations where a lot of guys are, uh, you know, it's a full-time job just managing their own individual career. And, uh, you know, I was looking more at the big picture. Now, as far as today's episode, I want to talk about you leaving the WWF in 1996. So we'll kind of just start a little bit from the beginning. And how did you actually get into the executive role into the WWF? I mean, we're going to do a whole separate episode on 89 and, and different topics as far as get, getting in. But just kind of briefly, how'd you get in with Vince when you left Rocket? I would had been close friends with Terry Garvin, who uh, we had worked together back when uh, I was booking in Amarillo and he was basically uh, uh, booking talent. And he was booking towns. So we had to work in a harmony with each other and uh, same thing in Kansas City. So uh, I got to know Terry and had a lot of respect for him. And of course, you know, really build a, build a rapport with him. And then he was very close to Pat Patterson. And I, I hadn't met Pat, I think one time at a location when Terry was there and he introduced me, but I, I didn't, I knew about Pat. I knew, you know, that, you know, he and Stevens uh, were, were superstars out on the West coast of California and went to Minneapolis and, uh, I had always heard that Pat was, um, well, I knew that he was highly respected as an in-ring talent, but also uh, uh, the creative creative side of bus- business too. So Terry had told me that he uh, was going to work for the WWE. And uh, this was right about the time when Crockett, I had been working, I was still working for Crockett Promotions and they, you could see the handwriting on the wall that the business had changed and Crockett going back to when I started there with Jim Crockett senior was always a business that was, um, very loyal to the people that were part of their, their, you know, their structure. And 
what happened was that the, those same people were involved as the business grew and grew, but everything grew so, I mean, it just exploded in terms of growth. And to be honest with you, as I, as I look back and reflect, and this is not a, you know, to, to disparage anybody who was there, but the people that were there were, were great at what they did, but they were used to doing it on a scale which Crockett Promotions uh, would embrace. And then when it got to be so big and so much more involved, a lot of the people that were there I'm, and, and this is just a, uh, you know, an opinion on my part. I, th I think some of those people, you know, were really overwhelmed, and a lot of them, you know, uh, had homes, had family, and 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 the thought of them having to go on the road, leave or relocate or something was, uh, um, you know, was a scary thing with them. So um, I could see that that uh, that. And, and with the business changing, the old days of Crockett that that was uh, a mainstay in the Mid-Atlantic area, and even though it grew and went into uh, Ohio as they branched out, um, the, the, to go on a, a national, let alone a global basis, the people that they had, um, I, I, I don't think embraced the idea of that kind of a challenge. So that was uh, something that really needed to be addressed and I had, had, as a talent had been all over the world I spent a year in Australia wrestled and worked there and booked there um, and all along each stop along the way even going back way before that um, I realized that my days were numbered as an entering talent and that I needed to, to expand my Horizons and and un, get to get an understanding of television production and how TV basically was the lifeblood of the business because that's how towns were promoted as far as I was concerned back to the territory days. Uh, you did a TV and you had, you did a TV and you had even when they were doing uh, local uh, uh, market specific uh, interviews, which did for a while too, where the uh, the television program had like six two-minute spots that the wrestling promotion, sometimes it was four, sometimes it was six, and it was like a barter deal. They would uh, produce an hour of television and basically hand a finished project, a pro yeah, product to the network that uh, they were accustomed to being on, and then they... Uh, promotion would want to hold at least two of the two-minute spots so that if you were running live events, you, that's where your live event centers would go in to promote. As the, as the TV would bicycle around to all your towns, you could put market-specific promos where you wanted to. And then the balance of the, of the uh, airtime, which would be another uh, four spots or five spots, went to the television network. And they used that to sell advertising and, and ratings for, for wrestling were, had always been consistent and excellent. So basically the TV station was happy because they got a, uh, a, uh, a finished product. They had no problem with 
with uh, the, the people that produce the TV of, of keeping to the spots to promote live event uh, shows in the area. And then they had the balance of that time to sell those. They got a finished product and that's where their, their, their revenue came from. They did, it didn't cost them anything to produce the TV show. It was handed to them and then they could turn around and, and sell the balance of the commercial time. So it was pure profit for them. And that's basically how the business uh, was structured. Now, as far as WWF and getting in there and Vince McMahon, everyone has such high opinions or maybe even low opinions. Everyone just has an opinion on Vince McMahon Jr. And everyone says, you know, is he this, is he that? What is your kind of uh, opinion kind of going in, in there and obviously starting working for him? Is it that he is, you know, this this kind of brash, you know, crazy executive that is um, – I won't say a genius, but like on that level, he's so smart than everybody else. I'll go on record saying Vince McMahon is a genius. So there you go. That's a quote from me. And I'm not, uh, I'm not seeking a job. Uh, I'm, I'm just speaking truth to fact. And I go back when I was, uh, uh, you know, still working in the office when, TV or when live events would come to the major markets, say Philadelphia, Vince McMahon senior would come to the towns. Now he wouldn't go to the TVs and everything, but he would come to the major markets and Willie Gilsenberg would do the same. And, and Willie would come from New Jersey. And uh, so I developed a, a uh, rapport on a first name basis with Vince, which was good for me. And then later on, uh, um, you know, that came into play when my name was mentioned to Vince, you know, he, he, he knew me, had been around me. Um, and I had that, that good relationship with him, which really worked out, worked out well for me. So was it a friendship, so to speak, or was it just kind of a business relationship? Um, we didn't really socialize uh, other than Vince would like uh, after TV would go out and have dinner, uh, they used to do TV up in Hamburg, and they would then stay overnight in Reading. And I went to college in Reading, so that was an area, and I lived there, so that was a very familiar area with me. And Vince, uh, uh, when TV was over, would take the the nucleus of his people and and uh, and have you know have a uh, kind of a dinner to, you know, reward everybody for the hard work with each uh, TV cycle. So I got to know uh, Vince senior, um, in that manner. What about junior? Is that, was that like a, a, a friendship there? Cause you said you created a rapport with him and, and you got to know him pretty well. Was there a relationship there, a friendship there? Yes, because you know, a lot and um, people that, that want to look into it's not like it's a, a a huge secret but a lot of people Vince paid he bought the the promotion it's not like it was handed to him mm-hmm. uh, and he which a lot of people don't know too um, ventured into a couple things before that in which they failed and lost money one was uh uh, he, he bought the arena in Cape Cod 
and did okay and then fell on hard times and it was a, a losing proposition. So he's been someone who didn't have everything handed to him. It wasn't like his father handed him a thriving business and said, here it is. Uh, Vince bought it from his father and paid his dues along the way, which is why I have so much respect for, for Vince because he doesn't ask anybody to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. And it's a lot easier to respect somebody who just doesn't, the, 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 has everything handed to them that they didn't have to work for it and earn it. And I'll go on record as saying Vince earned everything. And he, but he also, um, he had the vision too. When he realized that, that the internet and cable television based out of Atlanta was going to, that was the old fiefdoms of the, the, Back in the day, the, there were probably 25 individual separate promotions around the United States, each of which was one in Florida. There was one in Michigan. And each of them would produce their own television show. And Tennessee was one, too. So Eddie Graham uh, established Florida as based, he liked the credibility of treating it like a legitimate sport. So he was surrounded by the Jack Briscoes of the world, uh, legitimate amateurs who had credibility. They had the amateur background. And yet you went to Tennessee with, uh, with Nick Goulas and it was, uh, or, or went up to, to uh, Michigan and Ohio with the Sheik. And it was, it still said wrestling on the marquee, but when you went in the building, you, you were watching a totally different show in Michigan and Ohio, because the Sheik was running around, going crazy, throwing fire and doing things, which was totally foreign to what you were you were seeing in in Florida. So, wrestling, rest. It's not like there's a book that says, "Oh, wrestling." Let me open and see what it is. Oh, well, this is what I have to do, and to be uh, recognized as wrestling, it it falls in this, uh, you know, in, in this parameters. No, you know, wrestling is whatever you establish it for your particular audience. And then what changed all of that was when cable television came along. And I remember being in Amarillo every, every time that you, because Amarillo would produce their own TV and most of the guys that would go in there because of the expense of getting an apartment and getting their kids in school. Most of the guys tried to come there and stay at least six months to a year. Wrestling fans were always telling the promoter, you know, Jerry Kozak, who was, uh, uh, along with Nick Kozak, had been a great tag team, and Jerry and his wife uh, promoted Amarillo. And Edie did the business part of it, and Jerry was kind of the, uh, you know, the, the figurehead up front guy. But it, it uh, Amarillo was 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 a great great territory, one of my favorite places to go. Amarillo with the Funks, similar situation that. Uh, uh, Amarillo, Lubbock, uh, Abilene, even down to El Paso, was uh, was a, was a was a separate territory, and they each produced their own TV show. But like I say, when cable television came along, I remember being in in, uh, in Amarillo, and the fans would now they're seeing a a telecast with Wildfire Tommy Rich on TBS, 
and and Buzz Sawyer. So they're saying to Jerry Kozak and and there's other prom- local promoters uh, are hearing the same thing. They always would say, well, when are we going to see somebody new? And and the expense of bringing somebody in is such that when somebody comes in, they're going to stay for a while. You can't change faces every week. You can move some people in and out, but you can't do it on a wholesale basis. But the fans would still, when am I going to see somebody new? And then it really, really got, uh, uh, I don't want to say a problem. Yeah, I guess it really was a problem when all of a sudden uh, TBS is now on. So the fans can see the promotions product that they that they produce in Amarillo, the Sheik's territory, they see their thing, but they're now each of them also seeing what comes out of uh, out of TBS on the cable. And and because they're seeing Buzz Tyler and uh, the guys that were, were on TV every week, now the local promoters are being hit with, well, when am I going to see, you know, Wildfire Tommy Rich, when is when, when you going to have, when is he going to be on the card here locally? Well, it's hard time thing to explain to the local fans. Well, yeah, you're seeing them on TV, but it's like they're based out of Atlanta, and those guys stay there, and and they maybe go out to some isolated things, but it's not like you know they're going to be in our town every every week. So that was kind of a uh, transition period of time for the business and uh, really, really changed everything. And you think that Vince Jr. was way ahead of the curve as far as that and really kind of scooping up those territories, buying out those territories, getting the TV and then turning it into national TV? Yes, because he he saw the handwriting on the wall where all the rest were putting all their energy into trying everything possible to to save the status quo without realizing that it was a futile effort, that, that cable television was now changing the landscape and it was never going to go back to be like it was. They couldn't pretend that those other programs weren't on the air and because the fans are the ones that decide, you know, what they're going to buy a ticket to see and they're, they're the ones that are going to express, you know, what, what their desires are. And uh, it, it, that's where Vince realized what what the future held so he started going out to a lot of these local uh and and some of these deals were uh in territories were barter deals and by barter deal i mean um oh let's see i'm trying to think of like saying let's say kansas city okay they do a show on in memorial hall they tape it and they tape it and it shows live that weekend in Kansas City, and they use the two two-minute spots to promote the live events that are going to be coming there week to week. But then that tape the next week went to Wichita, and when it went to Wichita, they would not they uh, they would the television station would be sent separately uh, two two-minute commercials to put at specific spots in the show promoting whatever live events were were going to be held in that area that were serviced by that TV. And then sometimes there weren't, uh, there weren't, there wasn't a live event. And so the promotion would have to do a generic thing just to keep the interest there. And the other four spots, the local television station 
then used the, sold, sold them. And because wrestling got good ratings, it was a good deal for them. They got an hour program that was complete, and they got four television uh, commercial spots that they can sell locally, and that money was their, their revenue. And they had no cost to produce it because it was a, um, it was a show handed to them with everything there, but there's open commercial spots that they can sell locally. So it was, uh, it was that, that's how the business was structured in those days. And even fast forwarding a little bit, as far as, you know, the WWF is concerned and, and Vince, it became, they became the dominant thing. You know, WCW obviously was still there, but they were the clear number two. But by the time, as we kind of get rolling forward a little bit and 96 rolls around, no longer is the WWF that number one and that dominant number one. They almost fall back. Well, not almost. They do. They fall back into the number two hole. And WCW under Bischoff is becoming the number one thing. And you're in WWF basically for seven, almost eight years at at this point. And at this point, you're going to leave the WWF. What was the reasoning at this point for basically leaving and quitting the WWF? Just to go back in time, um, the the TBS people were not wrestling people. Ted Turner loved wrestling. Mm-hmm. And really the board of directors people, the suit people at Turner at TBS Tower, they would have been just as happy to see a product that was generating revenue and um, you know being profitable. A lot of them looked at it as, oh, you know, wrestling. God, it's so lowbrow that, you know, you got the Braves and you got the Hawks and you got other things. And that there were, there were a lot of people that if wrestling went away and wasn't seen, they would not have been disappointed by that. And the only reason that wrestling remained part of the programming uh, was was Ted Turner. <laughs> Ted was mm-hmm. not going to be yep. told that, uh, you know, we're taking wrestling off the air. I mean, it was... It wasn't going to happen as long as Ted was alive, just because it was something that he had pioneered there. And and it's like when when he bought a, U, a UHF station, I think it was Channel 17, the, the core of his programming was wrestling on Saturdays and the Atlanta Braves. And it was back when the Braves, you know, they were, they, they tried not to get beauty shots because the places were empty the stands were empty and they tried every promotional thing from people rolling peanuts with their nose up the third baseline and one on the first baseline see who who got to the bag uh first i mean they they they, some of the crazy things they did to try and generate interest uh you know but that's the nature of the the nature of the business but uh and there were people who looked down on it but as long as ted was there Wrestling was going to was was going to be a part of it. Turner definitely definitely uh, you know loved wrestling and kept mm-hmm. it near and dear. And, and it's funny that you know all these years later and, and ending up in '96, Bischoff is in charge. Ted Turner puts down the edict that there must be a Nitro, and then all of a sudden Nitro takes off. So Ted Turner always kept a you know close eye on wrestling. Was always loved wrestling. And it's funny that in 95, he's basically throwing down the gauntlet saying, you know what? I want to compete with Vince McMahon and I want to you know, have my own wrestling company and, and wrestling show on TNT. What happened too, which I'm, a lot of people may not know, is that, that Ted went to Vince and said, 
I want to buy into your promotion and, and would like to be a partner. And <laughs> Vince said to Ted, I don't have partners. I, I own it all and it's going to stay that way. Hmm. Well, it was a slap at Ted. So then that was the impetus for Ted to then look at what he had to do to start from scratch and really basically, you know, be in competition to, to Vince. And that's how it all, how it all started. And, um, it, it was, you know, I always, and this is true in anything you always are, you're whatever your, your business and getting aside from wrestling, but wrestling in particular, wrestling is healthier when there's competition. Because without competition, it's very easy to to become complacent and the business is okay, doing good, making money. But the minute that you're threatened with competition, then the level of the program takes on a whole new look because there is that competition. So it would be hard to tell somebody like a Ted Turner that, you, you know, you're better off because now you're in a fight and you're having to bring people in that you might not have thought about doing otherwise because you're in this war. And uh, wrestling was better for, for competition. Absolutely. And in 96, was do you think WWF was a little bit, as you're making your exit, do you think that WWF was a little bit of a sinking ship? You know, when, when Bischoff came in, he had been working in Minneapolis and they didn't really know what he did, you know, and I, and I don't want to, I don't want to diminish whatever he did do up there, but (laughs) he was able to tell the story the way he wanted to with his version. So when they were looking for somebody at, at the, at, in Atlanta to run the program, somebody said, Oh, this guy, Eric Bischoff, he is, this is what exactly what we need. He's a, one of us, he's a TV guy, but he's one that knows wrestling. So they opened the door and put out the red carpet for Eric to come in. And of course, Eric wasn't going to tell them any different. Uh, and, Eric accomplished a lot. He really did. I'm not diminishing what he did, but a lot of it was uh, smoke and mirrors. And the, the, the people at TBS, as long as the numbers grew and, the, and the, the company was profitable, and what happened was there was a period there which happens because wrestling is cyclical. And I was working in the, in the office. We had moved out of the, out in, to Smyrna, uh, Georgia and had a separate office and they had rings set up and they were, the power plant was, uh, was trying to develop new wrestlers with uh, Paul Orndorff. And it, it's like all of a sudden they hit a, a spot where things, you know, weren't, weren't going that well. And of course the people, when they were enjoying it, didn't know why it had been successful and why now it had, it had hit a lull. And, they, you know, they bought into Eric and they thought, well, you know, I guess Eric's going to have all the answers. Well, Eric, you know, did well when business was good. And when it didn't, 
like a lot of other people. I'm not, and I've been in that position too, where all of a sudden you don't have the answers. And that's why in the old days, the territories would change bookers. And uh, Jody Hamilton would be in, in Atlanta and he'd have a hell of a run with his guys. And then they would bring in Dusty with, with uh, his guys out of Florida, which would be new faces. And they were people that were loyal to Dusty. And, you know, they would go on and, and business would pick up again with different faces. And that's how the, the, the business uh, thrived and did well for, for quite a while because there were enough uh, Jody Hamiltons and, and Dusty Rhodes uh, uh, to, uh, you know, to, to, to run the place. But there weren't a lot of people who either had the, had the uh, uh, maybe the, the ability to look beyond just on a small, small scale where they had to look at a, a uh, producing a television program, doing so on a national basis and uh, territories, including Atlanta, as a result, had their periods where they fell in hard times. And do you think Vince Jr. is one of those guys that got it despite, you know, in 96, despite it kind of being a sinking ship and, you know, despite them becoming number two? Do you think Vince still had that that vision of where he wanted things to go? Do you think he still kind of was the, the master, the genius that you previously thought he was? I never lost. I never. <laughs> my opinion never changed, Vince. I worked mm-hmm. for him, worked there seven years. Uh, work with he and Pat. Uh, we work in the office all week, and then all of the creative was done on the weekends in Vince's home with a casual atmosphere. And in the summer times, we'd be out at the pool, and I watched uh, Shane and not Shane, not so much. He was off running with his buddies, but I watched Stephanie grow up because she she would bring her other girls, and they were splashing and having a good time in the pool. And Vince had a uh, a cabana out there so that if it rained, we were covered and he had a whole bank of phones and he, Pat and I basically, uh, that's how, that's how the company was run. And Vince had the final say on everything, which says it, it has to be structured that way. And Pat, Vince takes the, Vince takes none of the blame for anything that didn't work out and all the credit for everything that was successful. <laughs> and, and that, I'm just, that's just how it is. And and Pat Patterson is probably the, the of all the people that I've been around and work with. And I've been around some, you know, I, I think of Eddie Graham as my mentor and a, and a genius. But right up there was, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, the, the the people that came out of Florida, and they. Uh, you know, they were successful and I lost my train of thought, but, um, you well, know, as Dust, far as Pat, yeah, as, as far, far as, as Pat, 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 Pat was there and Pat had been around San Francisco with Stevens and worked for Shires and Roy Shires. I, what little time I around I was around him realized that he was a, a true genius too. And Pat was smart enough to be there and so when later later in his career when pat got involved in the creative side of it he could sit with the talent 
and make an assessment or come up with a creative idea. And he would have the credibility because he wasn't spe speaking in theory. He had done it. <laughs> All you had to do was look at the run that, uh, that Stevens and Pat had in, uh, in San Francisco with Shires a hell of a run. And for years, and then it wasn't like something, well, well, this was a, the luck of being that right place at the right time. They went to, to Minneapolis and did the same thing again. And again, it's because Pat understood the big picture. He was, he was a great in-ring performer. He was a great understander of talent, could deal with talent, and, and somebody who, uh, man, I have so much respect for personally and professionally. And then with Vince, Pat knew, he learned early on what Vince liked and didn't like. And he knew he would learn real quickly if he threw something out there and it just didn't, didn't fit with what Vince was comfortable with. Instead of Pat going to the, to the trenches and doing a, getting into a fight with Vince to try and convince Vince that Pat was right and Vince was wrong, Pat, Pat was smart enough to not get into those situations. Mm. And he learned what Vince liked. And he then took and fed Vince what he liked by the shovelful. And it was, <laughs> and, and we would, we would sit there and we would go to TV and we each had this great big ledger. Like if we were doing three towns a night, we, we would have all the towns on each page so that we would have a record there of who was there and everything. And then when we went to, when we would do TV, when we went to TV, Pat and I would sit in the back with our book open and we would have, you know, each of us would have our own way of little handwritten notes here and there. And Vince would sit up front and he would have the final version of what's we, what's we all had input in and agreed which Vince was most comfortable with. And then Pat and I would sit in the back and Vince would run the entire show. And it wasn't like we needed to be up there at the table next to him or to try and send a message that, you know, that we had a lot of input in whatever the final result was. That's not what my head was and Pat either. We just we were just happy to be part of an incredibly successful run. And there were times where Vince would be up there with a book and he would be telling all the people, like, all of this came from Vince's mind, which was fine. Pat was comfortable with that and so was I. And sometimes, you know, things would change. And, and this didn't happen with great regularity, but every now and then Vince would, we would make a change for the better. And Vince, this was the last minute thing, he would forget to erase out something and write in what the, what the best, best thing was that we decided to do. And all of a sudden Vince would be doing the production meeting and he would be putting out this thing that all of a sudden I'm looking at my book and I look at Pat, Pat's looking at me and it's like, what, you know, this you're on third base, you know, we got the home plate and changed everything. So you <laughs> yep. know, Pat, Pat or I would raise our hands and say, Vince, I, I just have a note here. I think that you decided that what you wanted to do was this. And, and you know, and, and I, that's what I wrote down. And then Pat, Vince would say, oh, yes, yes, that's right. I just, uh, uh, it was in my mind and that's, yes. And I just 
forgot to write it down. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> and <laughs> Pat and I, it wasn't about us getting, you know, credit or, and, and there were people there that probably figured out what was going on, but I would say 95% of them looked at Vince. And then, like I say, he had that reputation of being the genius and we were, Pat and I were fine with that. We had job security. We were doing well financially and it just was a, uh, a system that worked out very smooth. That is a great system. You yeah. agree. And it's, it's very simplistic. And it's funny that you guys were for a long time, the number one in organization making so much money. It was very simplistic and they kind of got away from that for, for a while. Uh, that's for sure. Is there, like you said, as far as hanging out with Vince at his house and doing creative on the weekend and hanging out in the pool and things like that, we, is there an actual way to be close to Vince McMahon? Like, obviously, you know, you're working with him very tight, but like on a personal level, is there a way to get close to him? Um, I never really thought of it that way. I mean, we would be in the office all week and Vince was hands on in everything. If we had a pay-per-view and they were going to do a poster, they, that poster wouldn't go until Vince came in and looked at it. And, and a lot of times he'd say, okay, that's fine. Or I want to, I want to take that out and I want to put this in. I mean, he, he had final say on everything. So it's not like Pat and I were doing it and Vince was taking the credit. No, Vince, Vince was hands on and the final say on everything. And, Pat and I were just two guys that had a lot of experience and Pat in particular understood Vince's likes and dislikes. And so between the, the three of us, uh, it was a system that really, really worked very, very well. And it was, a, it was, there were good times for me. We were working seven days a week. And, um, and what was funny was we would finish Friday and then, you know, I was married. Well, I got married when I was there, uh, and I'd been living with my 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 last wife at that time. And you know, Pat and Louis was Louis Vandera was still there, and so Pat Pat didn't really you know. It was like we would work all day with Vince, and I couldn't wait to get away because I would just be drained and I would want to be home with my wife and enjoy a home cooked meal and time with her and just, just kind of decompress. And we would do that all day and I'm waiting anxious to, to get home. And Pat would say to Vince, what are you doing tonight? Well, I don't have anything. You know, I was going to go in and say, well, I'll, I'll join you. <laughs> and I'm thinking, Oh my God, Pat, you're volunteering, and of course Vince, you know he he'd love to have Pat or Pat's company, and uh, and I just I don't know uh, I I I needed I guess balance is the word that I'm trying to come up with. I needed some balance. I didn't mind working seven days a week, but but there were times where I want and and what would happen was we would we would be doing TV starting Monday. And we would work Saturday and we would have three weeks of TV that we were going to do Monday. One lot, one show that was live. And then the other two we were going to tape 
for the following weeks. And that's back when it was like three week cycles. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it, we would start with blank papers. We'd have three blank papers and we would get out there all day Saturday and Vince used his, he would, he wouldn't want to immediately go to those three weeks. And I learned a lot from Vince because what, what I learned to do was I'd have a, 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 a roster of the heels and baby faces, kind of like a, if you're a baseball manager, you want to have your, it's like your, here's your team roster. So as you're, as you're plugging stuff in, and especially when you're booking like an A, an A show and you got two other towns that are B's or a BC, you would put your, you would put two main events in the, in the, in the big town. And then you need a good main event in the other two towns. And then the smaller the town, the less strength you would need under it. And in the big town, you, you had, you had to understand how to balance all of that. And, Pat and I worked very well together because we understood the concept and it was easy to give Vince ideas and present things and finally come up with something that, that he, he, he was very comfortable with. And I think the success of the business for the time that we were there speaks for itself and how well that, that formula worked for us. And, but we, when we were doing TV, we would get there Saturday and have three weeks of TV, three blank sheets. And Vince's MO was, well, I'd like to look ahead and then work backwards. So huh. here, here we are, you know, Royal Rumble time. He's looking at WrestleMania the following year. And he's one in his own mind, have a vision of what he thinks his main event is going to be. And then that determines what you're going to do with, uh, you know, with your other major, because there were like four major pay-per-views, and that's before they got into the monthlies. And then you could, well, if we do that at WrestleMania, we could do this at this, and we could do this at SummerSlam, and he, he would work backwards, which made sense in that you at least have a plan. The only problem is that if you're using the ultimate warrior as an example, and he's, you, you, you've got, well, he, we could have worked with him here and we could do the build up with this match here and the dip, the dip and work back. And then the warrior would do something crazy and get fired in the garden. And all of that dialogue, all of that brain thing, oh my God. all yeah. of it start all over. And, it takes a special mindset to, I mean, some people would say you put so much energy and you finally, after three or four days, got this and now it's useless. You got to start all over and that could be very discouraging, but Pat and I had been in the business long enough that we understood the nature of the business that either somebody got fired or somebody got hurt, hurt serious enough that they were going to be out six months. And if they were a key player, it's okay. How, well, how are we going to adjust to that? How are we going to, we, we still got to draw in the meantime. So it was, um, it was a, it was a challenge and it also was something that not everybody could do. And I, and I, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back 
but it took people like Pat. You know, I look at Pat as probably the the greatest mind that I ever worked with because he he could do that. He had the vision, and yet he could also be in the main event and perform. Pat could do it all. He was he was to be the greatest, and um, it was it was it was a good time for me. But I would come home Saturday, and we wouldn't have the TVs written. And when we would leave, you know, a lot of times we would stay and then Vince, we would be draining. Vince would say, well, have dinner, stay here. And he had a housekeeper, Mary, that uh, an Oriental woman that was a great cook. And most of those weekends, I, I would, a lot of times Pat would leave and go because uh, he would have dinner plans with uh, Louie. And I would stay and, and be invited and have dinner with with he and Linda and a lot of Shane wasn't there very often, uh, nor was Stephanie and, you know, just have that. And so I, I got to be around Vince and, uh, have a relationship with him socially, socially in the sense that yes, we had a business relationship, but he and I could, you know, laugh and have, have a good time and, and really talk about anything and everything. And the, they they were great 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 memories for me. But it sounds like it's a very stressful job. Sounds like seven yeah. days a week, which yep. means no time off, no vacations. Yep. It just seems like, especially after seven years, you're almost getting like a seven year itch thing kind of going on, where it's just too much. It's getting to be such a pain. Is that kind of what led to the exit? Were you just kind of just getting frustrated? Just not really with Vince per se, but just the overload of work it sounds crazy yep. yep and you're looking to move on and and it's like the grind and and i and i refer to the grind makes it sound negative and in many ways it was but um uh, you're doing something that you love doing but in doing it doing something that you love it's very demanding too extremely demanding and you have to sacrifice a lot. Your your family sacrifices uh, a lot for it, and and it, it it you're at the mercy of of each television that you write and the and the crowds, the towns that you book, and how you're doing well, how the company is doing well financially, and we had an incredible run there because Pat understood Vince, Pat and I worked extremely well together, and. And we we just we you know we had an incredible run we had an incredible run, and yet I could, at the end of a workday, be drained. And Vince would say, "Well, here, don't you know, have dinner here." And I would sit down and have dinner with him. Enjoy it. I enjoyed the time with he and Linda, and and having dinner. And sometimes we talk business. Sometimes we do. But Vince never asked anybody to do anything that he didn't do himself. And by that, I mean, Vince had a, uh, a Manila legal pad at his bedside with a, with a pencil. And Vince would wake up out of a sound sleep at three in the morning because either he dreamed something or was having a vision and he would sit up, turn the light on, grab the pen and pencil, and he would write notes for fear that in the morning he, he would like forget about it or God, did I dream that? 
And so a lot of powerful stuff. Vince just, the business was everything to him. And he, you know, he, before that, he had the, the, uh, the hockey team in Cape Cod failed. Business venture and went bankrupt. And there was something else that he did that went bankrupt too. So Vince didn't have everything. A lot of people, oh, his father did it, just handed it to him. No. Vince did it on his own, with his own money, and failed a couple times, and felt that he was better for the failures and learned from them, and so that's why I have, you know, there seven years I having so much respect for Vince, and you know, you after seven years you leave, and it wasn't. You know, leaving is not always easy, but it was never also um, ugly. It was never ugly. <clears throat> and so, like, I remember going to uh, Dusty's memorial service in Tampa. And Vince and Linda, I was sitting there, and Vince came in with Linda and Hunter and Stephanie. And Pat and I were already there. Flair, I was sitting with Flair and, and his wife, and then Pat and them came in just sat in the row in front of us and it wasn't until it was over and we went out or took a break went out and there and there was vincent he made eye contact went oh his eyes lit up and you know and it's like two old friends run to embrace each other and it was you know that kind of uh you know i still had so much respect and admiration for him and he had respect for me and and appreciated you know what i had what i had contributed along the way as with Pat. And so even today, if it was, I'm somewhere with Vince, it's not like, Oh, there's Vince, you know, and I got to uh, hope he doesn't see me, you know? No, I would go up to him. Vince, how the hell are you doing? And give him a big hug. And, uh, to me, he is, you know, you say, well, some call him a genius. Okay. I'm calling him a genius. And some, somebody, cause I got, I got a a, a a body of work which of working with him, which I can can say that Vince is a genius, and because of what I saw us accomplish with him, and he was a visionary. Uh, I don't know that there's anybody else, because a lot of people wanted to go when cable television came. Vince understood the impact that that was going to have and that some of the people in the regional territories were fantasizing that somehow, well, you know, we just, we, you know, we just need another talent or we need the, 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 you know, a better, you know, a better TV. None of that mattered. And Vince understood the big picture and understood the future and the impact that cable television was going to have on the industry. And Vince made decisions, and he was looking, even then, globally. He was looking at at uh, England. He was looking at France. Uh, South America, you know, was just something mentioned in passing because back in those days, the exchange rate was such that it, that, and you have to go somewhere where you have uh, venues with enough capacity and the, and the ability for the economy to generate X number of dollars for ticket sales 
to warrant being able to go there. And so Vince understood where it was, made sense to go and where it wasn't, and maybe it would later. And I mean, he was always looking. He, God, he was always looking. And he was, and I think now all these years have passed and that every week Vince is still there doing the same thing. Yep. And you would think, God, you would think he would have burned out somewhere along the way, but not Vince. He just, uh, and again, it's his company. He's uh, been rewarded for it uh, financially uh, with Stephanie and, and Hunter. You know, there's somebody that, and, and even they, you don't have that discussion, but you know that Hunter knows that his involvement is going to be to a certain point. And then whatever that point is, if there's a decision that has to be made that's above that level, as long as Vince is alive, that's the one that's going to make that decision. And Hunter knows that. And he's good with that because this is, he's under the learning tree. And, um, Vince and I are the same age, and you know you never know what what what's around the corner tomorrow. And if something happened, I am confident that that uh, Hunter with Stephanie would not lose a beat and and keeping the momentum going of that company. Now, as far as you, I mean, you mentioned Triple H and under the learning tree. You're very familiar being mm -hmm. under the learning tree and yep. kind of being in that same same role as him. Was he unhappy with you in 96 when you decided to leave? Like, was he really upset? Did he not want you to go? What was his reaction to it? I don't really remember. Uh, I don't think I, I mean, sometimes you, it's like the seven-year itch. And I left and I didn't leave with ill feelings or animosity. And there's a certain element of that that you can't avoid just because you were there, you're leaving and somebody's going to be ticked off or they're, or they're going to put their own spin on it. And it's just, you move on. And, um, I have a friend, uh, up in New Jersey that is probably my closest friend, a guy named Mike Petrano. And he's, you know, he's involved with all kinds of things. He's with other athletes and he does signings and, uh, and has done some things with, uh, with, uh, with Hunter. He had him for a signing with him. This is going back a year or two ago, maybe a little longer. And you wouldn't know that Mike and I were very close. And in, in one of the, the down times, uh, uh, Mike says to Hunter, he said, you know, he said, we, 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 we have a mutual friend. And Hunter says, oh, yeah, who's that? And he said, J.J. Dillon. And Mike calls me the next day. And he said, his eyes lit up. You're friends with J.J.? Oh, my. And he said, he went on an hour thing about what a great mind you were. And, and he, he said it was almost embarrassing to the, 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 the praise that he was bestowing upon you. And he said, it's unbelievable how high a regard you're held there. I said, well, I'm glad to hear that. You know, I appreciate that. And I, yeah, that, that's great. Yeah. And, and it's, it's one of the things where, you know, I told my son, I told my son one day, I said, you know, 
when you when time comes and I pass or I'm gone or whatever, and as people look at my body of work and reflect on, because I go back to wrestling in the in the territories. I a lot of people don't know that I actually was an active wrestler for the first five years. I had three thousand two hundred professional matches before I ever became a manager. The first time when Archie Goldie said. Have you ever managed? I said, no, I need a manager. And he said, I've heard your interviews. And, and that opened another door and, and, and another phase of my career that, is, that has worked out incredibly well for me. But then I always had that ability as a manager that if I had to work, and I learned from Bobby Heenan. Um, he, you know, Bobby would talk to me and he would say, well, because Bobby Heenan, I was told by by Nick Bockwinkle. He said, Bobby Heenan was a great, great mind. He was so witty, but he said, as a talent, he was as good as anybody else on that roster. And he said, when Stevens and I were uh, managed by Bobby, we're a, a hot team. We were, the, we were the team. He said, if one of us got hurt, Bobby could substitute in that match and go out there and damn near cause a riot. He said, that's how great Bobby is as a, as a performer in the ring, in addition to all of his other qualities. And I, I you know, that I, anytime that I'm mentioned in this, in the same light, uh, it's very gratifying to me that I, 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 and I told my son, I said, you know, when my career is over, he said, when I look back, it's not about, you know, how many titles you won or how many matches you had or how many times you sold out this arena or that arena or, or who you managed. It, it, the, it, the bigger thing is I always wanted to be looked back by my peers as somebody that they held in res with respect. And it if definitely I, seems if, like if they I, do. If I have nothing else just to be respected. And that's the most most important thing. And all these other things were, are were, what I did each step of my way through my career, so that that I could say that, in my mind, if I am respected, I, I it's not something that they just somebody gave to me or bestowed upon. I I earned it. It's not a guarantee that you're going to have it. It's nice to have it, but it's nice to have the 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 knowledge that it's something that you work for. And I appreciate um, the way I'm looked upon. And, and, and it's just respect. And that that's the most important thing to me. I got two Hall of cool, Triple H. I got two Hall of Fame rings. Yes. I, that, 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 which are, I guess, validity to the fact that, okay, you must have respect or you wouldn't have two Hall of Fame rings. But, uh, nah. If I didn't have the Hall of Fame rings, I would, I would, I would want to be respected. And it, and it's and nice it, in a case like that where my friend, I, I can't remember the last time I saw a hunter. And for my friend to say that he did something with him and had him in for an appearance, and just, man, you know, we got a mutual friend. Oh yeah, who's that? And he, he said when I mentioned your name, he said, oh my God, you know Jesse. Oh, and then he said, I had to listen to his praise of you for the next hour. <laughs> I laughed almost embarrassed and I said, well, 
I feel the same way about him, but it's I'm I'm glad that uh, it's very it's, I'm, it's very nice and very gratifying to know that that he feels that way about me. That is pretty cool. Uh, that uh, he obviously still glowing and still a lot of respect, and that there's absolutely no heat with you and the McMahons because you never know. Sometimes you hear a guy exit WWF and you hear that Vince has heat with them forever, and you know it could be the way they left or this or that, and or they you know they didn't give notice or they just quit on him. You know, there's always different things you hear that are kind of rumors that there might be some heat with Vince and certain guys, but it's good to see that you were with him for seven, almost eight years, and there was no heat that you nope. actually left the company and he was happy to see you, and then Triple H is praising you as well. Yeah, if the phone rang tomorrow, I picked up the phone, and it was Vince, and he said, I need something. What do you need? Tell me what and where, and I'll be there. That's how, that's my, that, that, which Vince doesn't need me, but I'm just, as a way of example, and or, or, or Hunter too, you know I mean? It's like, if he, if he called and said, this is something special that we need and we, that we can't find the right person, and then somebody mentioned your name and you're the perfect thing for it, would you would you be there to help us? And, it, and, and no hesitation. Not about, well, where, how much, what are you going to pay me? <laughs> no. Those things to take care of themselves. And uh, But they don't need me. <laughs> They're doing incredible business, and I'm thrilled for them. And I'm happy just to have times like this to reflect back on on my career. And, you know, there are good times and bad times. And anybody that tells you that they don't go through that, an up or a down, is not being truthful. Every day is not a bed of roses. That's life. But overall, as I look, uh, I wouldn't go back and change anything. And I have... I've met or worked for, or been around the who's who of our business. I, you couldn't, you know. I think you'd be hard pressed to mention a name, and I'd say, "Oh, somebody I never met them." Don't you know? And I, I am. I have very my needs now. I'm I'm 77 years old. I'm, I I I ended up working. I moved to Delaware because I needed benefits with my my kids that were still of the age where I had to problem. And so I got a job with the state and I, at the time I was, I was in WCW just closed down and I thought, Oh, I got to look for a place to work. And I would look in the, at all these places, Burger King, hiring a manager. <laughs> huh. I would go in, Hey, how are you doing? I saw you got a sign. Oh my God. And they, they I'd fill out the application and they'd say, well, there's no way we could pay you anywhere near the kind of money you've made. I said, I know that, but I, I can't I'm I can't sign my paper that the information is truthful. That's not my demand. I'm just I'm I'm the first one to want to adjust my lifestyle. It's a different time and I'm in a different place in my life. And invariably I, I don't know if it's they thought, well, he's saying the right things, but truth be known, I can't imagine that he would be happy for whatever. And I was being sincere. <laughs> and I I bounced around for three or four months. I was still getting uh, severance pay from wherever I was before. It was WCW or whatever. So it's like I had money coming in. And, and so it wasn't like I had to find a job the following week. But I was looking for something with benefits. So as the other benefits ran out, I would have, I would have a new thing. And, uh, 
And I looked and looked and looked, and then uh, uh, I, I, you know, like I say, went to Burger King, went to all these places, and they all, all they all knew me. And and then I, I looked at an ad in the Saturday paper for a job fair for the state of Delaware Department of Corrections, which is the prison system. Yep. So I went, I went to the. I went to the, uh, to the, to the, it was an all day thing. You first, you had to t- took a test and when you passed the test, then you, they, they had three people panels that you did a personal interview with and everybody knew who I was. And, and I said, well, this is a different chapter in my life. You know, I'm, I don't want to be treated any differently than anybody else. This is a new, this is your industry. And I'm if I if you, if somebody hires me, I'm coming in, and I want to earn everything that I get in your culture, pay my dues. And uh, there were people who a year later told me that they, you know, they came in in, in a similar situation, but there wasn't any openings. They they were told they would be hired, but they they couldn't bring them on board for a year because of, you know, whatever the the number of openings were. But again, I hit there at a time where. This was uh, in November, and the end of January was the next. They had like a nine-week um, academy that you and I and I got the last opening in that Janu- end of January academy. So I had Christmas off, and uh, and I was still getting paid from uh, from the other job from w- WCW or where it was, and um, when I and it was funny when I went. And showed up for the uh, um, it was the nine week thing. When I walked in, uh, nobody spotted me, which that happens sometimes, but a lot of times it's it's not something that always happens, and it's not. But it has happened where somebody just doesn't it doesn't make the connection because there's nothing wrestling related or anything that would cause them to, and so. Uh, I, I I started the thing and then the week or two, it was like the nine weeks and the week or two in, they were going to do, uh, go to a, take a group and go to the prisons, the three major prisons for observation. Okay. Well, I wasn't there for 30 seconds and the inmates are hanging on the fence. It's JJ Dillon, JJ Dillon. <laughs> And so the people who were my, the other things were, the other cadets were in awe of what was going on, but the, but the instructors, all of a sudden they're doing a double take and they're looking at me and they're listening. To and so the one guy calls me over and he said, um, are you who I think you are? I said, I don't know who you think I am. <laughs> and it's like, okay, you know, I, this is, I can't avoid this, you know, but I take it in stride. And I said, I never made a point of mentioning my background up to the first couple of weeks. And I said, that's the way I wanted it. I'm coming into your business, your industry, and I'm starting at the ground floor and I don't want to be treated any differently than anybody else. So I said, this happened today. And I would just assume that, that unless somebody asks you, Say I heard, and then you yeah yeah. But like it's no big deal, and 
I would just assume that you not initiate a conversation. You never guess who, you know, I just want to be treated. And they, and they respected that. They, in fact, maybe they even respected me more because I didn't want that to be what I was about. And I was, I think there were 35 in our class. Um, I was the oldest. At the, I was 60, uh, 61, 63. And the next uh, person younger than me was 47. And there were a bunch of them that weren't even 20 years old yet out of the group of 30. And the guy that was beneath, beneath me that was the 45-year-old, he quit the first week. And, wow. uh, it, you know, it was do it all. You know, the hand-to-hand and all the book work, which I have a college degree I could do. And, uh, you know, we went on observation at the prison. You know, the people yelled out. The other cadets, you know, were oblivious to that, but the instructors now knew. And I said, hey, I said, "I, I didn't bring it up because that's not what it's all about. And if somebody had asked me, I would have told them. I'm, I'm very proud of, of, of what, what I've done to get me to this point. But my background and my experience, other than the wrestling business teaches you about how to get along with people, human nature. I mean, a lot. there's a lot of things that apply to anything and everything else that I would ever do, this included. But I don't want to be treated differently than anybody else. And they said, well, we respect that. And, and I went through the uh, nine weeks. Nobody in my class still at the end of nine weeks knew about my other alter identity. And what's interesting, at the end of nine weeks for the, for the graduation ceremony, the, the cadets all had to pick from their class of 35 someone to be a spokesperson and to make some comments at the uh, commencement exercise. Well, they unanimously selected me, not knowing that I'd spent my whole life being on the stage. Yeah, talking to him, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of like, hmm, really? <laughs> okay, I think I can handle it. And uh, it, it ended up, I worked there just a month or two short of 12 years. And never had any problems. Never, and it's funny, the inmates, they all, they all knew who I was. And I never talked wrestling, but if they had some comment about wrestling or asked me a question, I would, I would answer their questions or engage in conversation. But I never brought it up. Or, or would then the next time bring it up again. If somebody wanted to talk about it, Okay, that's part of my past, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna insult you by telling you, oh no, you must be having, you know, mixed up with somebody else, and and the inmates too, you know, they, they, uh, because I was older too, and I know that, that in prison there was people there. It's it was such an eye-opening experience because. There was a prison in Trent, New Jersey, where I was from. There was a big stone wall. And I, there are many times that I was down around that area. And it's like, God, I wonder what is on that other side of that wall. 
because it is. It's a whole different world, a whole different um, economic structure. <laughs> they gamble. They pay debts. They pay debts. You know, they buy their packs of soup, and a lot of them, you know, pay, you know, pay with that, pay gambling, and people send in money, and it's an unbelievable. It's a whole, whole structure in and of itself. It's just amazing because that was the biggest prison with like 26, 2,600 inmates. So it was big. And everything from, they didn't have, if you get arrested for, get stopped and there's an outstanding warrant for failure to pay child support or something, they don't have a jail system in Delaware. They take you to the prison and they have a separate, uh, area that are it's called pretrial. In other words, you haven't been adjudicated yet, and you have no contact with anybody that's uh, been convicted and 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 been judged or sentenced. And it's a system that uh, you know works well uh, here in the state of Delaware. And it was a, a great a great learning experience. Um, the inmates all treated me nice because I treated them nice. I treated them with respect. It was like, you know, there's there's uh, rules that have to be enforced and housing rules and what have you. And I learned very quickly that, um, you know, it's something as simple as they're not, like they're, they're in lay of like dorm things. And one of the things is they're not allowed to like string shoelaces and do their own laundry and hang it there to dry. That's against the housing rules. And they can be written up for that, lose uh, visits, lose this. And that was something that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get on somebody's butt because they the, they had to do their own laundry and had nowhere to go with it. And I, in other words, I picked my battles. In other words, there were things that that they knew, you know, you can't do this. You know, they're not allowed to fight. They're not allowed to do this, not allowed to do And, but they knew that, that with me, um, don't, don't test them with the serious stuff because it would come down on you with both feet. But don't worry about the minutiae, the small stuff. He, he, he's not somebody that, oh, let me see what the booklet says. Oh, you can't do that. You know, you lose your, uh, your uh, commissary for the week or your, your visiting privileges. No, it wasn't a power trip for me, believe me. Hmm. And the inmates, they, when you first come in, assess you. They don't know what to expect from you. And if you're hard-nosed by the letter of the book, they'll accept that. And they'll they'll work within that. The only thing is, they expect you to be that way each and every day. And if you're somebody like me that um, that picks the thing, you know, I, I draw the line somewhere else, and they know I'm not going to bother them because of something. And, and, uh, and then they, especially the older inmates, you know, they, uh, they respect that you are not going to bend to the serious stuff, but you're not going to be on a power trip and bust their chops over minutiae or small-time stuff. 
He's no, that, that's not what he's about. He's not here on a power trip. And so then they they don't they don't uh, they don't do things in front of you just be, you know they if anything they police themselves because they respect that you don't bust their chops about the little things. And especially with the young ones when they come in. Some of them come in, you know, full of uh, some have attitude and didn't happen very often, but if somebody gave a hint of expressing attitude to me, the next thing I knew, they had a blanket party. <laughs> the inmates did with that guy, and they, you know, they would throw a blanket over him and beat the shit out of him, and basically <laughs> tell him, "Don't ever do that again." <laughs> he doesn't break the rules but he doesn't bust our chops over the little things and makes life for us as tolerable as it can be given the circumstances of where we are. And don't you rock the boat and give him a hard time. I love that that basically the WBF head of talent relations kind of got you ready, and so to speak, in your role yeah. in, in all the companies as well, got you ready for that, really. True. You dumped yeah. some crazy, crazy guys in the WBF when you were head of talent. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's true. But it's a lot. Of, this, I, a lot of it's common sense. But to me, it's common sense. But somebody else, you know, says, "Well, you know, you, you have a gift. It's more than just common sense." And okay, well, thank you. I appreciate that you you say that. And uh, God, life was good, and it really is. And who knew that time in the WBF would prepare you for what you were doing? You know, not too far in the distant past. I mean, that's pretty cool that I was able to do that. And now, as far as the WBF and leaving in 96, we talked a lot about that. And obviously, your next jump would be to a WCW. But I think that is a good stopping point for All this right. week. I think that's just uh, like a good way to stop it. And I feel like as far as coming up on some future shows, I think definitely the jump to WCW, your time in WCW, the relationship with Eric Bischoff, definitely want to get more into that for sure. Obviously, uh, some special guests will be joining the show in, in the upcoming weeks. So, I mean, we, there's a lot of stuff to, to cover with you. I mean, just so much stuff to cover and so many cool things to cover. And I just love that we were able to kind of get behind the scenes with you and Vince McMahon and you and Pat Patterson and really mm -hmm. talk about your time in, in, in the WWF and even exiting the WWF. Yeah. I'm my, my whole journey through life has been one positive experience after another is one. A lot of times you don't, which is if somebody gave you a book that, that you, Oh, I could turn the page and see what my next uh, journey is going to be. God, life, life would be so boring. And, and it's the, it's the unknown of, of a lot of times what what's a, what's around the corner, and I never I never feared that because I had I had confidence in my own ability and and confidence that I could adjust to whatever the to whatever this scenario was by just being me. And I, I like I say I, I I'm 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 the luckiest guy on the face of the earth. I'm 77 years old and I'm. God, I got two Hall of Fame rings and and finished my career. You know, a lot of my peers uh, have gone before me. Some are in wheelchairs and walkers, and and I'm mobile and get around. And 
fortunately, uh, it's not like I, I don't go to a gym. <laughs> I don't, huh. I don't, I don't work out in terms of, or have a special diet. I've always eaten <laughs> what I want. And I guess I could probably, if I was dropped on an Island, as long as they had pizza and popcorn, I could, I, I'm, I would survive. And, uh, I had some pizza today and some popcorn today, so. But, uh, <laughs> That's great. Uh, you know, my children, I love my children. I'm married three times. Uh, 35 years, I have people, some, probably married. so I've been married 35 years. That's some total, three, three failed marriages. But one was 14 years, one was 17 years, and one was, I think, 18 years. Anyway, total of 30. So I'm capable of having a, uh, uh, a, a sustained uh adult relationship um and now i'm i'm i've been divorced and i'm single living by myself and now i as you get older you 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 get um comfortable with your life and i i don't know that i could ever marry again or, or have, there would be a woman that would ever put up with me just <laughs> because i'm because i'm spoiled not that i uh hard to get along with Nothing like that. It's just, uh, you know, when you, you get the freedom of being able to do what you want when you want. And I, I don't have, I'm not into jewelry. I'm not into high fashions. I, I have an apartment that just been here 12 years now, totally meets my needs. I don't need anything else. I have a car that's 10 years old and uh, I maintain it. It runs, it runs well. And my, my needs are, I mean, needs are very simple. I have some money put away, and I use that more to to uh, to help my kids. My youngest, uh, um, Nicole, is going into her second year of law school. She's the last one. Oh, and wow. So, nice. Yeah. Yeah, she's at Mercer Law School in Macon. And, you know, so I'm financially being able to help her a little bit. And uh, just, just been lucky, really lucky. And I still have my health. And I get a chance to do things like this, and and uh, you know, and make personal appearances, and I, I really enjoy getting out at the, at the events, whether it's a fan fest or what. And, you know, fans will come up, and and uh, it's gratifying to know that they're happy to see me and that they want to share with me what their memory is of when when they interact, whether they saw me or. You know, somebody ended up in the Maritimes. Yeah, when you came up there, and I remember, oh, man, that's years and years ago. But they, they're positive memories to them, which are positive memories to me, too. And uh, I'm just happy that the business that's given me everything continues to be kind to me and just hope that uh, hope tomorrow is as good as today. And as far as plugs and everything for yourself, I would suggest everybody please go on to Patreon. A Patreon page has been set up where you be, can become a patron and support the show. So that's obviously going to be JJ Dillon on Patreon. Check that out. A new pro wrestling tea store will be opening up very, very soon. Working on some designs and stuff. So please pick up a JJ shirt. We'll let you know exactly when that drops. Any email or questions, concerns, comments, please email yes. JJ Dillon podcast at gmail.com. That is JJ Dillon podcast at gmail.com. Of course, you can always follow us at 
Two Man Power Trip on Twitter. And I highly suggest you check out JJ's website, jjdillon.com. Maybe even buy a book. Wrestlers are like ah. seagulls from McMahon to McMahon. Please buy it, that book. It's check great, that out as it's well. A, it's a great – when I have somebody like Dave Meltzer or, uh, you know, uh, some of the other historians that, that have, have – they you know, they, they always – well, one of the five best, and they talk about Brett's book, and some of the, and and my name gets mentioned in that grouping. Um, a lot of that credit goes to Scott Teal. Scott uh, knew more about me than I knew about myself, and when we he had to talk, we were two years, I guess, where he talked me into doing. I didn't, I don't know who's what. I don't have enough that I could even fill a book, and he finally convinced me to do it. And that was a year in progress, and we would we would uh, be on the phone for like, and, and we did do it uh, almost like a diary where, where and I kept these the these week at a glance books that had all my records, so I knew where I was, what year, what other guys were in the territory at the time. So they were a reference guide that really that really helped me. And when we were done doing all of those segments, Scott turned around and broke it into categories so it would have been very boring to you know to talk about oh this was my first territory in charlotte and you know following me like a like a diary would have, i think been i'd have been bored reading about it but but he took and broke it into categories and and he has a knack for um taking a somebody's story like mine and my life story and presenting it in a certain way that it makes for interesting reading. So I, I, I always thank Scott Teal for, for the fabulous job that, that he did. And that, uh, you know, 2005, the book came out and, uh, continues, continues to sell and they, they do reprints. The first a hardback printing was uh, only 3,000 copies and it sold out like in a week. And then there, all the others have been paperback since then. And, uh, they, they, uh, and I, 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 I get copies and, and try to take them to personal appearances with me, at least, you know, a handful of them because a lot of people, Oh, you got your book. I want to buy one, you know, and I sell it for what it called, what I have to pay for it and give them a signed copy, which makes it more special for them too. So, Life, like awesome, I said, awesome life, is, life is good. Yeah, life is good. Yep. Awesome stuff, as always. JJ, it is an honor to get the chance to do this show with you. And all you wrestling fans out there, thank you for joining us. And we will be back next week for another episode of JJ, the JJ Dillon Podcast. And JJ Dillon thanks the fans who are tuning into us and listening to me just like you uh, supported me and supported professional wrestling all throughout my career because without you the fans I wouldn't be sitting here today so I never uh, never miss an opportunity to say thank you and look forward to uh, uh, hopefully spending some time with you next week this podcast was a presentation of the two man power trip of wrestling's podcast empire <laughs>